pray. Father, I pray that you would just come now, and as we uh, enter back into the book of Revelation, that you would simply come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. Uh, as we continue in this book, as we go from chapters 12 to 22, there's much more here about fighting. There's much more here about battles, and all of those battles are with the enemy. I pray that you would make that clear. I pray the gospel this morning would be both comforting and convicting. I pray that it would, would uh, tweak us, it would move us. And Father, I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Um, well, Jamie mentioned uh, at the beginning that I always, you know, have some stories with my from vacation or trips and this is no different. Um, people often ask when you come back from vacation, when you're a pastor, they, they often say, you know, so how was your vacation? Or they say, was it restful? Did you get some rest? Because you're concerned, rightly so. Um, and I always struggle because I have a, it's both a gift and a curse that I can, I, I, I'm almost unable to say anything but actually what I think. And so when people say, so was your vacation good? Was it restful? Not sure how to say that exactly. How do I put this? How do I put this so it sounds like it actually was when it really was fair? Hmm. You see, it actually started out pretty well. We were going to do a family camp in Idaho, which I did. There's a new EPC church that invited me to speak there, and they said, bring your whole family, very rural. I mean, like it redefined rural in my mind, actually. And so I went, and it, before we went, actually drove to Idaho, I called the pastor and said, you know, I'm training for this marathon. And I got, I'm supposed to run 15 miles the Friday morning we arrived. Um, can you figure out a, a track for me kind of thing? And he said, oh, sure, I'll set you up. And so we got to Idaho, and that night the pastor was sort of dusk, and he said, oh, let's get in the car, let me show you the, the, where I'm going to have you run this 14 or 15 miles. And it was a big circular track, if you looked at it on the map. And as he was showing me, we drove, and there was like a big combine in the middle of the road at some point. And we couldn't pass. And he said, well, you know, this is about the seven-mile point, and you'd just keep going past the combine and just follow the road all the way around and up and back. And I said, that's, that's cool. And so that night we got back to his house. He said, and here's mosquito spray. There's, he gave me three bottles, and I said, what's that for? He said, well, West Nile's really a problem here, West Nile virus. And I said, like, you mean like your head swells like West Nile? He's like, yeah. He's like, you know, only 10 people have gotten it recently. It's like, it's no big deal. And I said, fine. Well, what I didn't do is I wish I would have known. You see, when you're running and, you, and you, it's like a three degree sort of incline downward, you can't really tell. In fact, you sort of feel like you're pretty good. But when, remember where I told you that combine was? So the next morning I took off running, and it was great. I mean, I felt great. I'm running through cornfields and hop fields, and farmers are driving by in the tractors, and I'm... Yeah, I'm you know, giving them the old high fives and trucks are whizzing by. And as soon as I turned at that seven mile point, the first thing I noticed that I was looking into the, the, straight into the sun. And it got about 20 degrees hotter. But then I also noticed what he didn't tell me was the first mile of that turn was straight uphill. And the second six miles of that were only moderately uphill. And during that whole time, I was attacked by dogs no less than six times. And I mean, I wasn't attacked but in the sense that they bit me. But you know how they come running out from among the corn and they just want to scare you? They're like, hey, watch this. And, you know, and, and you're just like the new guy. I'm a little backpack on. And I promise you, by 10 miles, I was so miserable. 
I was praying that one of those combines would clip me. <laughs> I'm serious. I thought, you know, clip me. Don't kill me. Just clip me so I have reason to call for a ride. When the dogs would come out, I'd give them both of my hands. Just bite a little nip so I don't have to do this anymore. In fact, I was, gone, I was close as I ever come to quitting, and I must have taken a wrong turn because right when I was getting ready to quit, I looked over and there was the pastor's house where I'd left from. And I just figured that was a smiling providence that I was only supposed to run 14 instead of 15 miles that day. Now the question a lot of you have to be asking yourself is because all I do is complain about training for this marathon. Why bother? And, and you know, that's the question the longer it gets I ask myself, to be honest with you. Why bother? In some ways it's just good for the stories. In some ways it's good because I can say I finished something. But do you ever ask yourself the question, why bother? You're, you're into something and you go, well, okay, that doesn't make sense. Why bother? It's the same thing in the book of Revelation. We've been looking at the book of Revelation for a long time now, and it's been in some sense like marathon. At least for me it has in a lot of ways. And you get to chapter 11, and at the end of chapter 11... Chapter 11, it tells us about the end of the end. Remember, it doesn't even say to, to him who is to come and who, who was and is and is to come. It just says to him who was and is because he's, Jesus has already come by chapter 11. The jig is up. Everything is over. And yet, John continues, or God continues to reveal to John, chapters 12 all the way to 22. And the question is, why bother? It's a pretty big marathon up to chapter 11. A lot of people have told me, man, this is the first time I've ever really looked at Revelation. And part of it is because it's a lot of work. So why would you bother continuing on more if you take it all the way to the end when you get to chapter 11? Well, practically speaking, it's because it, the vision, it, John's having this vision that doesn't end in 11. It continues into chapter 12. But part of it is because of what we're called to do and because of the nature of life. The, the, what you see in, Genesis, in Revelation 12 through 22 is what, is it, what it means to live as a Christian. And what it means to live as a Christian oftentimes means struggle and strife and trials and tribulation. And Genesis, or Revelation 12 through 22 tells us why that's important and how come that's important and how come that's even the case, especially chapter 12. You've heard me say, I know a number of times, that nothing's easy, right? Nothing. And yet, when you look at Revelation chapter 12, you're going to find out today why nothing is easy. Why, if you're a Christian, is nothing easy? Why, why aren't relationships easy? Why isn't your job easy? Why isn't church easy? Why isn't any of this stuff easy? Today you're going to find out. Before we jump into chapter 12, finishing 7 through 17, let me give you a little bit of review. So the first question is, what, what is this book, right? I've been gone for three weeks. I assume you forgot everything we've talked about for the past six months. What is the book? Remember, it's three different kinds of literature sort of mashed up into one. Number one, it's an apocalypse. And an apocalypse reveals something to us. It's like the pulling back of a curtain. And what does it reveal to us? It reveals to us the person and work of Jesus. It's also a prophecy that John says. And what does a prophecy do? Most of us tend to think of prophecy in terms of something that predicts the future. And sometimes it does. Most of the time it actually doesn't. But what it always does is it, it, it's looking for some kind of moral response. In other words, it's calling us to have faith, it's calling us to repent, it's calling us to believe something. So the reason it's a prophecy is all this stuff that John's giving is given to us so that we might move in some direction. And finally, it's a letter. Remember, he says to, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and he ends it by saying, grace and peace to you all. So no matter how wild and how wacky you think the middle of this, this book of Revelation gets, you've got to always keep in mind that it's a letter, and it was given to encourage 
churches that are probably struggling with their faith. They're either, they're either struggling to, to make it through persecution or they're struggling because they're compromising and they're not actually struggling at all, which is a struggle. And so what's the purpose of the book? Remember, I've told you often that the purpose of the book, on one hand, is just to, to make the case that Jesus wins, that Jesus has won in the past, that at the cross, every bit of work that Jesus was going to do on our behalf was completely and utterly finished on the cross in the past. And that Jesus will win in the future. In other words, he's going to finally clean up all things and all things will be renewed. That all things will be reconciled to him through the blood of his cross. And ultimately, it will be complete and finished. But also that he is winning right now. He's winning the world to himself. He's winning victory over the devil. And why is he winning right now? That's the question. Remember at the end of Matthew 28, he said to, to his disciples and to us, go into all the world and make disciples. That the last thing Jesus said to his disciples was go. To go into all the world, to, to witness to the gospel of Jesus, my gospel in his case. Witness to that. And the book of Revelation in some sense is an exposition of that. He's telling them over and over why they should go. The reason they should go is because he has won, but also that they have overcome. And at the end of all times, they want to, he wants to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible. In other words, to be outwardly faced. And so then the question, of course, with 12, which I asked before, is what now? Or why bother? You see, if you were, remember, imagine you're the, a member of one of those seven churches, and you've gotten to chapter 11, and you say, okay, Jesus wins, and he told us to do all this stuff. So, so what now? Or what's the point now? What, what do we need to know now in order to move forward into this struggle, to move forward into witnessing with the gospel? And then in chapter 12, you have very important information that helps you make sense of the world, that helps you make sense of why we should take the gospel to those who are outside the faith, and it helps you understand what it means to actually bear witness and have testimony of Jesus and all of these kinds of things. So with that said, I do have three points for you today. Uh, first point is simply that we're going to see a war in heaven and then you'll see a victory proclaimed, and then finally an ongoing battle. So that's a war in heaven, a victory proclaimed, and an ongoing battle. So the first thing, the war in heaven. Let me read to you uh, verses 7 through 8. He says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the question you have to ask here is, is, what, is what, what is this war in heaven? What does it have to do with the rest of the text? You see, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12, if you remember, I told you that's basically an explanation of the whole gospel. Right? That God promised he would send the seed of the woman to defeat the serpent, and he does. The, the dragon or the serpent tries to destroy the woman. He tries to destroy the child. She has the child. The child's victorious, and he raises from the dead and ascends to heaven. That's verses 1 through 6. So then all of a sudden you start hearing about this war in heaven. So what, what, before you even understand what the war in heaven means, you've got to decide which perspective you're going to come at it from. So the first perspective is this. And by, as usual, I'm going to give you the correct one. As usual, that was a joke. Um, it's true, but it was supposed to be funny. Um, one perspective of this war in heaven where you hear now there was a war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against these demons is that it was pre-creation or before creation. In other words, before the creation of the world, what you see is Satan, Michael battling Satan and his minions and casting them down. Now the problem with this view is you don't find it anywhere in the whole Bible. 
In other words, no other place in the Bible actually bears witness to that. And in fact, where you mostly hear that kind of thing is paradise lost. In fact, most of what people believe about hell and heaven and those kind of things comes from John Milton and not from the Bible. So if you say it's pre-creation, well, we don't know that for sure because no other place in the Bible tells us that before creation. We know that Satan rebelled and we know that he is an enemy of God, but we don't know that it was a result of, of Michael and his angels fighting and all of this kind of stuff. So if, that, if it's not before the creation of the world, then what are the other options? Well, the next option is that it could, it could be post-resurrection. Some scholars think it might be that. In other words, Jesus came and died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and Satan was so mad that he assaulted heaven. And Michael drove him back and defeated him and threw him down to earth. That doesn't really make a lot of sense either because Jesus has, has already won. By, the, by his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has become king of the universe. I mean, he was anyway, but now he was proclaimed. It just doesn't make sense. And we know that Satan was already on the earth causing trouble before that. So the third option might be that this is symbolic. And so you know my bias. You see, if, if you're reading a passage of Scripture, or you're reading a chapter in the Bible, and everything in that whole chapter is symbolic, and then you come to one or two verses, you probably are in good shape if you take those as being symbolic as well. And when you look at it in the context of how the, inner, the ancient Near Easterners would have looked at things, in the ancient Near East, going all the way back to the Egyptians and, and even further, what they believed that whatever was happening on earth, whatever struggles were happening on earth, were mirrored in heaven. In other words, that the, that as, as we were battling on earth, say if we were going to battle, then, then the, the angels and those who protected us would go to battle in heaven and vice versa. And probably what's going on here is verses 7, 8, and 9 are really just, uh, they're, they're another version. What did I write down? They're their heavenly counterpart of verses 1 through 6. In other words, as we're explained in 1 through 6 about the dragon coming after the woman and trying to stop the birth of the Messiah and the Messiah winning, what you see is the heavenly counterpart of that same event. And that makes sense because when you look at the book of Daniel, where you were introduced to Michael, in the book of Daniel, we find out about Michael in chapter 10, especially that he is the protector of Israel. He's sort of like the captain of the angelic guard. But one thing we often forget, even in Daniel where Michael is battling the prince of Persia and these other things, is pretty cool, is that Michael only battles at the behest of his general. And his general, or his commanding officer, is the son of man. In other words, Michael is just not sent out there to do bidding. Michael actually is working with and for the Son of Man, that is Jesus. And so as Jesus is accomplishing his will on earth, as Jesus is winning this battle on earth, so Michael is doing the same thing in heaven. But the interesting thing, in the ancient Near East, they would often think that the battles were fought in heaven and the gods would fight each other and whoever won there would determine who would win on earth. Here, it's the exact opposite. Whatever happens on earth is going to determine what happens on heaven. So if Jesus loses on earth, then heaven, Michael loses in heaven. If Jesus wins on earth, then Michael wins in heaven. Everything that happens with Michael, just like everything that happens with you and I, is completely contingent upon the person and work of Jesus. And so what you have in verses 7 and 8 is basically a heavenly counterpart to what's actually going on on earth in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And there's more to it. In verse 9, we see the dragon is revealed. Verse 9 it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I want you to notice what, what the dragon is revealed to be. The dragon is revealed to be that ancient serpent, the one who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So in order to understand who the dragon is and who this ancient serpent is, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that ancient serpent, the devil, came and tempted Eve and persuaded Eve otherwise. He deceived her. And his job now, what Satan does now, what the devil does now, what the ancient serpent does now, is the same thing he did in the Garden of Eden. In other words, the the same program he started then, he he promotes the same program now. And the, the, the program of the evil one, of Satan, of the devil, is primarily deception. It's just deception. And the question is, how does he deceive us? What, is the, what are the lies that he has us believe? And there's one primarily. You know, I've, I've, some of you see me pick up this uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. Susie gave it to me to help teach Sunday school about a month ago. And since then, I've given about six of them away. In fact, I used it at that retreat I did. And I preached on one part. And after I finished, a woman said, aren't you going to read the Story Bible to us too? It's really good. Let me read to you how this this story Bible talks about Satan's deception. The snake's words hissed into her ears, that's Eve, sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all. You'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. You see, Satan deceives us. He tells lots and lots of lies to us, but the primary lie that Satan wants you and me to believe is that God doesn't love me. How could he? Look at yourself. You're wretched, you're miserable, you're sinful, you've never done anything right, have you? And even if you have right, you have done things right, and you've made it look good on the outside, all of us know, don't we, that you're just a sham. How could God love someone like you? That's the lie. You see, because the, the lie says that God doesn't love you, God couldn't love you. And the truth of the gospel is that God does love you. And the way we know that God loves us, the, the book of 1 John says that God demonstrates, or Romans says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation or payment for our sins. And so if you ever wonder, if you ever doubt whether or not God loves you, look at the cross. Look at the cross. That's what the New Testament says. That is the supreme evidence that God loves you and He loves you so much He's willing to give anything, even His only Son. Anything else that, is, that you believe is a lie straight from the pit of hell. It's a lie straight from the lips of Satan. And so if Satan uh, is what wants you to believe that, if God doesn't believe that, why do we often believe that? Why do we listen to the lies of Satan? And only you can answer for yourself, but what I would propose, instead of listening to the lies of Satan, listen to the promises of God. 
Look to the cross. And even when you can't look to the cross, remember this. One of my favorite lines from Charles Spurgeon is this. He says that even when my eye is dim, even when I can't look to the cross to remind myself of the gospel, he said what encourages me is that the Lord's eye is not dim. In other words, even when I forget to look to the cross, what encourages me is that God never forgets to look at the cross. God never forgets how much he loves me. He never forgets that my sins are paid for and he will never hold them against you. That is the promise of the gospel. And if you're going to go into a battle with Satan, the first thing you need to know is that God, in fact, does love you and that God will never cast you out. And the cross tells us that. Leads us to the next point. A victory proclaimed. Notice verse 10, he says, Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of, Christ, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They love not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's three words I want you to remember from these verses, from verse 10, the word accuser or accuse. Let me read that to you again. He says, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ, Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So lots of times in the book of Revelation we hear this, this sort of praising of God, the authority, all be, uh, all be unto the Lamb, power and glory and wisdom and honor and all these things. Here we have God being praised and the reason he is being praised specifically, God and his Christ, is because or for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before God day and night. In order to understand that, you need to look at both the Jewish literature, but also even the book of Job. Jamie opened with that this morning. Remember the book of Job. Satan apparently, at some point in history, had access to God's throne. And what Satan would do at God's throne would constantly accuse the saints, God's people, of their sins before God. He was like a lawyer bringing a prosecu prosecuting a case against them. And you know what? He was always right. He was right. He would, if he came before God and say, look at him, look at Tommy, look how miserable he is, look how sinful he is, look at what an idolater he is, how angry he is, how judgmental he is, all of these things, look at him. Is there any reason that you, can, that you cannot convict him as guilty? Remember Romans, I think it's Romans 3, where it talks about sins passed over in the past and, because God was basically uh, staying execution until something else happened. And yet Satan's job was constantly to accuse the saints before God. And here we see that one of the saints' greatest praises that rings out in heaven is that the accuser has been thrown down. In other words, Satan no longer is in the presence of God accusing you and me of our sins because of the work of Christ. There is no ground for that accusation. That's pretty big if you think about it. That he has no reason to stand before God and say, Tommy is guilty, he's an adulterer, he's a loser, he's all these things. Because in the presence of God and in the sight of God, I am no longer those things. You are no longer those things. If you have trusted Jesus, you are as righteous as he is right now. And there's absolutely no ground for accusation against you. There's nothing that can be said against you. Because you, in fact, have the righteousness of Jesus credited to your account if you're a Christian. 
And so the question is, if God will no longer listen to accusations against you, why do you listen to accusations against yourself? And I know you make them, because I do it. You know, how many of you think, you know, you're a horrible father, you're a horrible mother, you're a horrible kid, you're horrible at your job, you're never going to make anything of yourselves, nothing ever is going to happen. All these accusations that are constantly coming at you, what you need to remind yourself of is that God doesn't hear those and that you shouldn't listen to them. But instead of listening to the accusations of Satan, you ought to be listening to the promises of God. I will never fail you or forsake you. I promise you, be strong and courageous. Think about that. The next word that's important here is also conquered. Verse 11, it says, They, that is the saints, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even to death. So notice he doesn't say that Jesus has conquered Satan, which he has. He says that the saints, that's you and me, have conquered Satan by the blood of Jesus. In other words, by our faith in Jesus, Satan has been conquered. So not only can he not accuse you anymore, but in fact, he has lost to you. And the reason he has lost to you, to you is because of the blood of Jesus. And notice it said by the word of their testimony. The, the, the word of their testimony is a, is a specific reference to them giving testimony to the gospel of Jesus. Remember, this whole book is about being outwardly faced at some level. And the way that the saints won is that they, not only did they not believe the accusations, not only did they conquer through the blood of Jesus, they were forgiven, but also they bore testimony to Jesus. And again, we have to ask ourselves every week, what keeps me from bearing testimony to Jesus? It says here that they did it even unto the loss of their life. And the question we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do it even to the, to the, to the inconvenience of my, average, of my day-to-day activities? Right? I realize that. And yet, more and more, we need to keep in mind how important all of this is. Finally, look at the last word, is urgency. Verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows that his time is short. So Satan has been thrown down to earth. Notice it says, Heavens rejoice, because Satan's no longer here. Earth, however, woe unto you, because Satan actually has been thrown down to earth, and his wrath is great, because he knows that his time is short. What am I getting at here? It's just this, is that Satan believes the gospel. He doesn't believe it in a saving sense like Christians would, but he definitely believes the facts of the gospel. He believes that Jesus was crucified and that he rose again and that he ascended to heaven and that someday he will return and finish all that he started. And between that time and the end time, Satan only has a little bit of time and he is going to make the most of it. And so he comes and he bears out all of his wrath and all of his anger because he knows his time is short. In other words, Satan looks at the gospel and it gives him a sense of urgency and the question again we have to ask ourselves do we as Christians if you are a Christian look at the gospel and does it give you a sense of urgency knowing that Jesus has ascended to heaven and he will one day return and from that time until this from the time he ascended till the time he comes back there is only so much time to talk to those who don't know Jesus about him to bear witness to him to go maybe on the mission field some of you do we think in those terms unfortunately Satan does He doesn't waste a moment. He doesn't procrastinate. I don't imagine he sits around watching a lot of television. He has a sense of urgency because his time is short. That leads us to the last part, a battle to persevere. Verse 13, 
He says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to a male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she has been nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed, and the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And again, I'm going to give you three words or phrases. The first word that is important here is the word exodus. Really what you see here is a, is a reliving or a reworking or a recapitulation of the exodus. Remember what happened in the exodus? That, that God delivered Israel from Egypt into the wilderness and Pharaoh and his minions pursued. And as they pursued, Israel passed through the waters. And as Pharaoh and his men tried to go through the waters, the waters came and engulfed them. And what's interesting here is the woman also starts her exodus and she goes into the wilderness to escape the evil one. And what's interesting though is the evil one tries to to use one of God's tricks. He tries to swallow her up with water, but it says here that the earth swallowed up that water, that the earth wouldn't, she couldn't be touched because she's being protected during her exodus. And it said that God even gave her the wings of an eagle. It sounds like Isaiah chapter 41 lot of other places in the Bible. And it, basically the promise here is that she will be protected for a time and times and a half. That's 42 months. That's three and a half years. That's the time from Jesus' ascension until the time he comes back. In other words, the woman is the church. We've, we established that the last time I talked about this. And the church, God's promise is that we, one will be an exodus, that if you try and settle down in this world, you're always going to be disappointed. If you, you have to remember that we are in some sense always in the wilderness, but that God also protects us through the wilderness. And that's an important thing to, to glean, is that the wilderness is not just a place where it's hard, but the wilderness is a place where God protects us. And another thing to keep in mind is this phrase, the phrase lame duck. Why is Satan so mad? Right? If you're familiar with the phrase lame duck, it usually has to do with politicians. And what a lame duck politician is, if you're not familiar with the term, is someone who's lost an election, but they still have three or four months left to serve. And since they've lost the election and they know they're leaving, people are often afraid of what a lame duck president or a lame duck Congress or a lame duck Senate, what they're going to do, because they have nothing left to lose. They're lame ducks. They've completely lost. And now they only have a little bit of time before they are actually completely gone from office. And in that time is when they tend to to cause trouble or they can cause trouble. And people are afraid of that. Well, that's exactly what's going on here with Satan. He's a lame duck demon. He has no power. He has no strength. He has no might. At least not real power and strength and might. Why? Because he's been completely and utterly defeated at the cross. There is no more deception. There is no more accusation. There is no more of any of that. And yet he still knows that he only has a little bit of time between the time he was defeated and the time he will be kicked out of office, if you will. And during that time, he wants to cause as much trouble as he can. And what the gospel says, what this says, is that God's promise is that he protects us in the midst of that time. And the final thing I want you to notice about this is that the way this text ends is in the present tense. Look at verse 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman, that's after she had escaped him, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold the testimony of Jesus. So the woman continued to escape and the dragon became furious and all of a sudden it's in the present tense. 
to make war on her offspring presently. That's you and me, on those who keep the commandments of Jesus right now, those who bear testimony right now. So why do I bring that up, that it's in the present tense? Because you always look at the book of Revelation. Some of it's in the past, some of it's in the future, some of it's in the present. But always the application needs to be in the present. Here it's clear, clearly obvious that there is an evil one who seeks to destroy us like a roaring lion. There's one who comes to make war on us. But the question is, is are you armed for the battle? Are you armed for the battle with the blood of Jesus? If you're not a Christian, have you trusted in Jesus? In other words, if you're not a Christian, I'm not just saying this to scare you, but there's a devil out there who wants you just as bad as he wants Christians. Have you trusted Jesus in order to, to win that primary victory? And for the rest of us, if you are a Christian, are you willing to bear testimony to Jesus regardless of what the devil will bring against us? Because he will. The more you do that, the more you should expect trouble. You know, oftentimes I, I tend to get in a lot of trouble. I don't know why. But usually the more trouble I'm in, that almost the, the more it affirms my calling. Because I figure if I wasn't making someone angry, then I must be doing the wrong thing. And I don't mean you guys, I mean Satan himself. He has to hate it when he sees people become Christians. We baptized someone this morning who had become a Christian here. And more and more, the more we become outwardly faced, the more that you can expect attack from the outside on one hand. On the other hand, the more joy and power there will be as well. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we continue to look at this book of Revelation, that you would motivate us to, to continue to bear testimony to Jesus, that you would motivate us to not listen to accusation, to not be deceived, but in fact to keep our eyes continually on the gospel of Jesus and upon his cross, not upon politics, not upon the, the, the world events. Uh, we should uh, keep our eye on those things and keep track of them, but those don't define who we are. You do. And I pray that you'd work that into our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen.